Yeah, I'm uh, born and raised in Italy. Uh, so I was, uh, um, I used to be an athlete when I was a teenager. Um, so I played, first uh, I was doing ski races, then I played tennis when I was 12 to really when I was around 18. Um, and then I also started doing um, uh, car racing. So I started racing with cars, first with go-karts and then I, I moved to cars. So I have always been an athlete all my life. I'm sure your parents loved when you were racing cars, huh? Yeah. My dad raced too. So he was uh, racing. He has been two times Italian champion. Uh, so that is you know, where the passion comes from. When I was a kid, I was going to the, to the races during the weekend with him. Um, but then, yeah, when it was my time, my mom was maybe not super happy. <laughs> did, did, did any of the sports ever become like a, a professional endeavor or did it never like sort of get to that point? It never... It never, I, I never became a pro 100%, but for example, when I was playing tennis, particularly from 12 to 16 um, years old, I was literally going to school and playing tennis, nothing else in my life. Yeah, and, and did you, I mean, did you want to go pro? Like, was that the plan all along, or, or did you just look at it as something you enjoyed doing when you were a kid, but then had other plans for, like, your career, if you will, when you were kind of a little bit older? Yeah, I think probably the latter, meaning my my family always pushed me really hard to, they had this concept of you need to study, my dad used to be a lawyer, you need to become a lawyer, and my, if you become a lawyer, we'll you know, feel good as a parent, that now you, you, know, you, you have a stable job. And actually, the funny thing, then I became a lawyer, right, and I work at two very large law firms, but if you ask my mom, my mom still says to her friends that uh, I'm a lawyer. And she doesn't tell them I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's, it's you know, we feel that in the Armenian Middle Eastern community, it's kind of the same thing, right? With all these ethnic uh, parents, grandparents, you know, you, you, you really have to be in a steady, you know, career that people know and they respect. But I feel like that's going to change. I think that our generation um, will probably respect entrepreneurs more than they will lawyers and doctors and engineers not to say that's a good or bad thing it's just it's how the mentality worked um you know how much of i mean clearly your parents had an impact in your profession because you ended up you said becoming a lawyer um did you feel as though you were forced to become a lawyer i mean or that you know you were forced to go to law school so at the time, right, the only thing I was thinking about was sport. And so that was the logical path to me. My dad owned a very small law firm in my small town. So I didn't like to study much at high school. And so when it came the time to pick college in Italy, you immediately pick law, right? It's not like in the U.S. And so it was just the most logical career decision. Then I was one year in. And uh, I read this article about these big law firms that were that they were closing the biggest deals in finance in the world, big IPOs. And that sounded to me like the closest thing to sport that you could do in a professional life. And I say, look, I want to do that. But the, to do that, there were two conditions to even have just an interview. You need to graduate with honor and you need to speak English. At the time, I didn't speak English, and I was not studying much. <laughs> that thing really clicked. And I said, oh, yeah, I want to do that. And so the same attitude I had in sport immediately translated in my college career. And so I graduated with honor, 
and that I made enough money to come to the U.S. I went to San Diego, studied English, and then I submitted my resume and I got in um, these two law firms, first one and then the other. How, how long did you practice law and what were some of the biggest sort of like takeaways from being a lawyer that you've sort of been have had the opportunity to apply to entrepreneurship and running a business? Yeah, so I practiced for around five years. Uh, and then the, the last, the fifth year is when I started my first company. So I was doing that in the night. Uh, and, and that is how the, you know, the, the business started, started making money. We never raised a penny. So I was able to start paying my salary since day one. Um, but there are two things I learned there. Um, first, working extremely hard. I mean, working in the top of the firms, it's, it's really challenging. I remember my third day of work in uh, my life, I went to the office at 9 a.m. and I left the following day at 2 p.m. <laughs> because we had the first closing. It was a major uh, TLC you know, uh, transaction. So that, that was a lesson learned. But the second one is to be very detail-oriented, right? In, in law, when you read these big agreements, 100, 150 pages, there are a lot of mechanics. You, you need to be perfect as a team, right? Um, and so that is something that um, I still use today. And then at Eight Sleep today, we have a culture of writing. So we write substantially multiple memos per day. Every meeting has an agenda, which is very detailed. And so I really um, use what I have learned during those five years and I apply it to, um, into my current company. Matteo, what age were you when you learned English? I was 24, 23. Wow. So, I mean, uh, you, you hear a lot of times that, like, those that learn languages younger obviously pick it up faster and it's less of a challenge. H how challenging was it for you to learn this whole new language in this whole new world, right? I mean, I'm sure you had heard English TV here and there, whatever, but was it something that was challenging or did it just come easy to you? No, it was challenging. Um, the interesting thing is since then that I learned German and Spanish. <laughs> now I speak four um, because my wife, she speaks Spanish. She's American, but you now we speak English and, and Spanish. But um, when I really focus on that um, in six months is when I really learn. At school, in high school, we had one hour per week of English. But, you know, you don't learn anything. At the time, I didn't want to study, so I was just yeah. the bare minimum. Um, but in six, six months is when I, uh, I was decent enough to come to the U.S. And then I spent here almost a year and I went back and my English was decent. Hmm. You mentioned um, starting your first business after a few years of, of being in law. What, what was the business? And did you end up, um, I know you, it was on the side, but like at what point did you end up leaving your career uh, in law? Yeah, so there was probably the only business bubble of the past 50 years in Italy at the time, which was in renewable energy. So the government started uh, paying a feed-in tariff for solar energy. So a lot of private equity funds started coming uh, to Italy to develop large utility scale solar plants. Uh, but a lot of people in Italy, they don't speak English, in particular in the South, where there is more sun. And so my co-founder and I, we started developing these um, large utility-scale solar plants, and we were selling them to private equity funds. And so 
I started doing this on the side. So at night, I was finishing to work around 10 p.m. at the law firm. And then from 10.30 to 2.30 a.m., uh, I was working on uh, on my business. And I think it took around a year to start making real money at the point where we could pay our salaries. And that is when um, I left the law firm. You mentioned you didn't have to like raise a penny. How did you end up funding this thing? Because I can imagine building solar plants are pretty pretty capital intensive business. So like, how did you end up pooling money together to to get get it going? Yeah, so we structured our agreements in a way where they started paying based on milestones, um, and so the the funds were anticipating the money, and we were really focused on the part of the permits. So before construction, and then maybe we were finding a bank that would finance the the building and make more money. But at the end of the day, we were not putting a penny on the table. So the only thing we needed was the money to pay our salaries and our team salary. Matteo, there's something that you mentioned that I think is this really important factor of entrepreneurship, which is, you know, you had your day job, you were making money as a securities lawyer. Um but at night, late at night, you know, when most people are probably going to bed or, you know, watching Netflix or whatever, you're focused four or five hours at late night building this company. And, you know, I think that's a true testament to being an entrepreneur. Uh, but at the same time, you know, so Pat and I have been doing this for over four and a half years now. I've come to the conclusion myself that I don't necessarily think that that's a healthy <laughs> lifestyle, perhaps, to live. What would be your advice to those that are working perhaps a day job, nine to five, eight to five, whatever their schedule is, but want to be an entrepreneur? I mean, do you suggest what you did? Is what you did the solution or the answer to success in entrepreneurship? I don't think it's binary. And I think it depends on what is your job? What is there your passion? Probably also your age, right? If you have a family or not. Um, for me, I was still now in my mid-20s. Um, I was really passionate about that. So I was not even feeling, oh, I have to go to work like at 10.30. It was, okay, let's, let me meet my co-founder, my friend, and let's play with this thing and see if it ever takes off. We didn't even know what a startup was. For us, it was more, okay, there's this opportunity. We can make some extra money. Let's do it. Right. Um, Another way to approach it, which is what I see more often here in the U.S. with startups, is if you have a, a, a certain idea, you should focus on that 100%, right? So you should have the courage to quit your job, focus on that. Here is possible to raise. So maybe it's family and friends at the beginning and you keep your salary very low. Yeah. And so um, how did everything go? Like how long did you run that business for and, and what ultimately ended up happening with it? Yeah, so we ran it for two years. We kept growing pretty well. And then uh, uh, the whole pipeline was acquired by a company. Um, so it was a small exit, but good for us. And so for, from there, we came to the U.S. Um, and we replicated the same business model, but in the U.S. Um, it was slightly different. So we were selling um, solar energy power to municipalities that they would prepay with the bond. But the concept overall was similar. Uh, we developed a large pipeline. Here we raised some money from a European investor, I believe two or three million dollars. And then at the end, the pipeline got acquired by Panasonic. And after that is when I started Aid Sleep. 
You mentioned, you touched on passion and I'm curious, was this something that you were passionate about or was it more opportunistic as a business that you was more so like a, a, a means to an end where like you wanted to build something quickly, you know, obviously try to have a healthy exit to then, you know, have enough maybe capital to then go out and maybe pursue other passions that you had? Um, no, I think I was passionate because at the end of the day is climate change, right? I think we were a bit too early. Uh, at the time, if you were doing this today, probably would be, you know, because of the price of the solar panels is way lower, the opportunity could be way bigger. At the time, part of the reasons why we had to sell was that the feed-in tariff changed. And so the government was not paying anymore for that extra value. And so there was less interest from private equity funds. So we knew since from the beginning that there was a clock ticking. And so we had to grow as fast as possible and then find a buyer. And we did it. Um, but again, when I look back in my career, if I say, look, my first two companies were in climate change and now I'm in health, um, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah. And so was it after the acquisition by Panasonic that you ended up coming up with the idea for Eight Sleep? Or how did, how did the whole kind of idea come to you? At what point did it come to you? And when did you start working on it? Yeah, so... Um, I kind of had a similar idea, meaning I was always looking at sleep and I started wondering why, why Elon Musk is taking me to Mars, but I still spend a third of my life on a piece of dumb phone, right? No, I lie over these and everyone pretends to then wake up eight hours later and be fully refreshed, energized and ready to go. That didn't make sense to me. Um, and so I kept iterating, or at least I kept thinking about the opportunity there. And then with my co-founders, uh, with my co-founder Max, who is the CTO, we came up with the idea. Um, so, so was it from the beginning to like completely disrupt like the way people look at sleep and like all that, or or did it kind of start off? Because that's obviously a huge, massive idea. Everyone sleeps, right? But it's it's such a massive idea, and and we'll talk more about the details there. But was that the plan from the beginning, or did it start off? With, with a very like specific smaller kind of thing. So the 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 fully uh, we I had the fully back idea since the 2017, which is when I wrote a memo. So probably earlier than that, but in 2017 I wrote a memo that then led uh, to raise our Series A, I think, from from Kozla Ventures. I still have that memo, and if you join the company, that's the first thing we will send you. Uh, and that is where we fully scoped our vision of sleep compression and saving your life. Because at the end of the day, our goal is to make sure that you can sleep faster. What if you could sleep only six hours and get more rest than when you were sleeping eight hours? And two, even if you sleep only six hours, what else can we do during that time? And the idea is to scan your body to detect early signs of illnesses and save your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so obviously there's a lot of like technical like things that go into something like this and so many different data points, you know, kind of, kind of coming from, you know, a law background and solar energy, all that stuff. How did you start kind of wrapping your head around all this and, and knowing what you would build? Cause you know, it's one thing to have an idea, but it's another thing to like actually execute on it and being able to say like, this is, I know what I'm building and this is what I'm building. Like what were you like inspired by other things or like, what did you, how did you end up kind of formulating all that? Yeah. So For sure, at the beginning, we were very naive. At least I was very naive, right? You don't know what you don't know, and and otherwise you wouldn't do it at at that stage. Um, 
The, so what I started doing is, because I have always been in performance and recovery as an athlete, I started reading a lot of uh, um, medical research and clinical papers. And so step one was to really develop sensors that can capture your biometrics while you're asleep. Then as we started doing that, customers kept talking about temperature and they kept saying, look, I sleep hot. I fight with my partners because they, we have different temperature preferences. So we started looking into that. At the beginning, we didn't have the money to develop the cooling, which is now our core feature. Uh, and so we started by focusing only on the sensors. And then at a certain point when I wrote my memo and we has achieved a certain level of growth is when uh, Cosla Ventures invested in us and they gave us the money to really build the heating and cooling system. Matteo, was the goal from the get-go to start a new mattress company or was it to start a tech company that people can put on their existing mattress? I mean, what was that original thought of the product? Yeah, yeah it has always been like a wearable, non-wearable. Um, so it, we have the DNA of a wearable company of an Apple Watch. It's just a different form factor, and that is what makes us unique. And so it has always been that. And even today, the cover is like the largest majority of our sales. So the mattress is really a small fraction of what we sell. Right. At the end of the day, customers, they have their own bed. They like it. They put our technology. They transform it from dumb to smart with our cover. Yeah, I, and that's what I was going to say is that, you know, I feel like the barrier to entry to get somebody to purchase an entirely new mattress in such a crowded space already, which I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, is a lot more challenging than, hey, you already have your bed. Perhaps you think it's comfortable. Maybe it's not. Maybe you'll change your mind, whatever. But here's something that you can supplement it with and also creates, I, I assume, a lead funnel for you in case they are getting bad sleep that, Hey, maybe our mattress is that solution on top of obviously the technology that we're providing you here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we offer again, the cover that is the largest majority of our sales and also the mattress, the mattresses, if you're already changing it, just buy the Lamborghini of mattresses. Here it is. Um, but if you like yours, you don't have to change it. Just add our technology on top. And people like that, that flexibility. You mentioned these like sensors and things that you were looking to build. Like did the technology exist to cer a certain extent already? Or did you have to like build it from the ground up without any real like examples or historic data or anything to like look into? So the type of sensors already existed and they were used in hospitals. But no one... Um, built a product, a consumer product with this kind of sensors and no one built it in a Wi-Fi connected solution that you can control from wherever you want in the world. And with the data processing on the cloud, on AWS, right? So we, we took something that existed again on a small scale only for hospitals, but it was proven to work at the medical level. And we made that consumer friendly and uh, uh, we applied ML and AI to it. What were some of the initial challenges that you faced? And we can keep this like two parts, one with the company, but also maybe one with you as a, as a leader of the company that maybe you can share for those who are maybe just starting off or um, could maybe like relate to some of those challenges um, that you might yeah. have. Under. So at the company level, it was definitely hardware. 
a certain point, this is a funny story, immediately after Y Combinator, we just closed our series, uh, seed round for $6 million. Um, things were not happening in China. So I go to my wife and I say, oh, I have to go to China uh, to fix manufacturing. And she says, oh, cool. When do you go? And I say, tomorrow. And she says, oh, nice. And wh- when are you coming back? And I say, once I have fixed it. So bottom line, I stayed in China for three or four months, or a couple of months uh, to fix that. Um, so that, that was uh, now one of the challenges at the company level. Then as a CEO, I think two things. One, obviously I didn't have any experience in hardware, right? So hiring for hardware, understanding what we really needed was probably the biggest challenge for me. And I think I made a bunch of mistakes there. Um, Mistakes that we were able to solve, it just delayed certain things. The other thing was that I was coming from a very different environment, right? Which was sort of finance. And I studied and graduated uh, in Europe. And so when it was time to raise money at the beginning before YC was really hard because there was almost no, no check box in my career that can prove that I'm, I'm real, right? Oh, this guy is this Italian guy who comes out of nowhere and we start giving him money. Um, and so at the end of the day, the U.S. is friendly and you can prove yourself and, and hopefully to a small degree I was able to do it. But at the beginning, definitely, there was some skepticism about, okay, who's this guy? Matteo, I'm curious about, you know, you you and your kind of sleep habits prior. Was there anything that, you know, beyond just, you know, other people's ideas of how much sleep they should be getting or your general consensus, was there, did you have any issues with sleep and um, were there any issues caused? And if you did, were there any issues that, that caused caused the lack of sleep that further kind of motivated you to start a company like this? Yeah. So first I have what is called restless legs. So this feeling in the middle of the night that you need to move your legs is sort of cramped. So you need to get yeah. out of bed. So that was one. And two, I have always been obsessed with efficiency. And so I started thinking, can I sleep less so I have more time awake? And that is how sleep compression, the idea of sleep compression started. And from there, I expanded it into health and body scanning. And what were, what were the results for you when you were doing that? Um, after eight sleep or, or, or before? Uh, after. Yeah. So with eight sleep, um, I'm able, obviously, I learned a lot about my sleep habits. I became a way better sleeper. Uh, so I pay way more attention to all the metrics. And through temperature, I'm also helping my restless legs. There are still other factors that have an impact like nutrition. Um, but at least I was able to uh, partially reduce it. Mm, interesting. So um, you mentioned like having to go to China and make sure the manufacturing was all you know being done right. At what point, I guess at the point that the product was finally ready, um, how did you start going about getting your initial customers? Yeah, so first we sold 8,000 units in pre-orders. And you can say, oh, that's really cool. In reality, it's not. And I tell you why. Because you need to build them when you don't know how to build. So the quality is okay. But more than anything is you set up everything with the supplier to ship these 8,000 units as quickly as possible, which is still late, but it's still a meaningful volume. The second after you have shipped the 8,000 units, you start moving, I don't know, I invent a number, 100 units a month. And so you start having problems with also your suppliers because before you had a lot of manufacturing lines, you build 8,000 units. And now you're telling me that you build 100 a month. 
Um, so you, you go through uh, that part that in China they don't like, but um, we were able to put patches. How, how do you get 8,000 people to buy this thing? Almost, you know, I don't want to say instantly, but super early. You know, one of the hardest things about a product or product launch is obviously getting the word out or people knowing about it. I mean, what did you do? And perhaps for the entrepreneurs that are listening, what can they do, you know, when they're launching a product or in the early stages of developing new products or developing new, you know, whatever it may be in their company? How did you guys get the word out? How did how did it spread so quickly? Yeah. So first of all, we did a crowdfunding campaign. And at the time, Indiegogo and Kickstarter, they were a big deal, right? So it was a different time for Ardor. I don't know if it would be possible to achieve the same today. Uh, but we did Indiegogo. The campaign went really well. At the time, a lot of media picked up the, the news because the product at the time was really, really innovative, right? It was at the peak of the IoT system, but we were the first one in the bedroom. And so we were covered by media, um, across the whole globe. I think in one day we got more than 150 articles wow. uh, about us. Um, you know, you mentioned innovation and oftentimes what we see is anytime a, com- a new company comes out with something that is, is very innovative, right? Like the society hasn't quite seen it yet um, or they don't even really know what it is yet. And then once it starts taking off, you see a lot of new entrants into the industry, competitors coming in. And one way to obviously prevent certain... I mean, competition is not always a bad thing, but you know, being able to prevent other people from copying your technologies, obviously patents and things like that. Is that something that you you have had to do? And and or or and and I'm just curious, have you seen a lot of competitors even come into the space since you have? So in hardware, you you put some attention on patents just because I, I think you can and you should, but at the end of the day, you just win against competition by executing faster, executing really well and faster. If you need to rely on patents, you have bigger problems, right? And then, the, yeah, maybe they pay you a small license, but you're not going to build a large company on that. So, yeah, we have patents and we have a great patent lawyer. We you know after we raise the money, we just hire the best and we have that. Mm-hmm. But again, I almost don't think of that as a real technological mode. We need to win because we ship the best product faster than anyone else. You know, there's something I'm curious about. I saw you were wearing a Whoop, and I know Pat and I are also wearing ours. And uh, we've, uh, yeah, you have everything, right? Yeah, uh, and we've had Will Will on our show as well, and he's obviously doing great things with uh, Whoop across the, across the globe. Um, you know, when a lot of these things came out, whether it was the Apple Watch or the Whoop, the Fitbit, Eight Sleep, etc., all these essentially health and wellness tracking devices. I'm curious whether it was in the past or in the present or if people are talking about it currently for the future, has there been any anxiety around people knowing almost too much about their health and almost, you know, worrying that, Oh my God, I'm not getting enough sleep or, Oh my God, my heart rate's risen or, Oh my God, I'm, you know, not recovering enough or, you know, it's so I'm, I'm too hot when I, right. Is that causing any panic in people or do people generally want to know those things? So two things is a great question. Two things. First, yeah, there is a small subset of people um, that uh, might have um, you know, the, the, the challenge you're surfacing. I would call it less than 5%, probably less than 2%. The big difference between us and other 
wearables is in our specific case, we do the job for you. Meaning, yeah, we report you the data, fine, that is table state with all the other wearables. But what 8sleep does is we keep changing the temperature multiple times per night to maximize your sleep. And that is the biggest value because you do nothing and you just wake up more refreshed. Mm-hmm. We improve your HRV. We have hard evidence uh, that within a week, almost 50% of our customers, they see a 10% improvement in HRV, which means almost like being six years younger. We have evidence we will show very soon in a matter of weeks uh, that we can meaningfully improve your sleep. And this is proven with a clinical study or a, a, a clinical sleep index. Um, and we do all that for you without you doing anything. And so for us, we overcome even the 2% of people that might get anxious about their data. Did anybody early on when you were launching Eight Sleep, or again, even now, did they care about the privacy aspect of, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I know you went to law school. I went to law school. So this always comes up, you know, of, of the privacy in the bedroom. I mean, like, I know you guys are not tracking certain things, but what did they say about that? Or how do you guys counteract that? Um, the, the way we counteract it is just by applying you know, the, the best and most standard policies that any other wearable company would use, right? Because it would be the same if you have an Apple Watch or a, or a Whoop or an Aura. So I think now there is a very high um, baseline uh, for all these companies about the treatment of data, and we are um, all matching that. Um, you mentioned you've had to raise money for the company. Um, first with Y Combinator, I'm assuming uh, you said Coastal Ventures, and I'm not sure if you've also raised more since then, but um, how's that experience been like for you? Are there any learnings that you can share with maybe founders who are like looking to raise or are, are in, currently in the fundraising process? Yeah, overall, we have raised $160 million, 160. Uh, So Y Combinator... Uh, Coastal Ventures, Funders Fund, SoftBank, General Catalyst, uh, Valor Equity Partners, who was the first investor in Tesla and SpaceX. Uh, so, they, I mean, hardware is hard to raise money um, because uh, obviously it's a very complicated business. Uh, well, instead, if you have a SaaS business, it's way easier, right? For, for investors, you get better multiples. So... Uh, if you really want to go in hardware, go for that, but make sure you're passionate. Make sure that probably there is a, a recurring revenue attached to that. Mm. Matteo, one thing that I think about is with companies like, again, 8sleep, Whoop, you mentioned Aura, or Apple's you know, health, fitness kind of product lines, is that it's one of those things that the success of it will be proven over a longer period of time, right? Yes, you're saying that there's an immediate you know, impact to your sleep and your HRV, which I believe is heart rate variability. Um, mm-hmm. But the longer eight sleep survives and longer whoop survives and the longer these businesses go and the more me- metrics and the more data they have, the stronger they become. So in dealing with venture capitalists, investors, etc., obviously they want to see their money tomorrow, right? Like the quicker, the better. That's always that any investor wants to kind of see their money faster because of the, you know, the whole time value of money. But what is there to be said and what do you tell these investors and others about building what I assume to be more so a business that you want to see beyond your lifetime that, that sticks around, that impacts lives, et cetera? 
Yeah, it's a great point, uh, and it's really, really good angle. So when I think about our company, I, I literally always think in a 20 years horizon, uh, because when you do hardware, first you need time, but more than anything, all these companies like us, we are innovating in a space where we are transforming preventative health. And so, yeah, sometimes you might find people that say, oh, but you're not super accurate with my sleep. You are only X percent accurate. And it might be true today, but if you look at the progression, maybe that X was half one year ago or two years ago, right? right. And so all these devices are becoming medical-grade devices, and they're, it's happening now, right? Our accuracy and detecting your heart rate is 95% compared to a medical-grade ECG. And you don't have to wear anything, and you don't have to go to the doctor, right? So companies like us and these wearables, they will become healthcare companies in the matter of a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And so our value will be exponential. And the right, will be right. Investors understand that, and they know that between here and the 20 years, they're very likely going to be an IPO if we do well, or there could be an acquisition. So as long as you keep growing with good and healthy margins year over year, they are supportive. The key thing you see in us, in Aura and Whoop, is to prove that there is a recurring revenue model uh, that can um, help the business to be healthier. So a few years ago, I remember I was just like, and I'm sure a lot of people will resonate with this. Um, I used to snore heavily. And I mean, I still, when I drink or, you know, when I drink mostly, I'll still snore that, that, that evening. But I remember going to a sleep test where they put all these like nodes and all this other shit on you. And you all, you have horrible sleep anyways during that test because yes. there's all this fucking shit on you. Right. So I, I don't know how they measure things. Um, you know, and I think they said that it was a very mild case of sleep apnea and they ended up, even though we're getting personal here, I get a, I have a point. They ended up saying that I had some sort of kissing tonsils and they had to remove my tonsils and work with the uvula, all this fun stuff. Um, just thinking about that, I'm thinking to myself with eight sleep, do you foresee there being other sort of hardware that you guys come out with for those that do have problems such as sleep apnea or insomnia, or restless legs, or all these other sleeping issues, which, I mean, can or cannot be neurological, I assume? Or is it just going to be, we're a tracking system, we'll let other companies figure out how to solve your problems beyond what we can do for you? So, the current device can already see sleep apnea in the backend. So, it's a matter of, okay, what... uh, um, legal rules do we need to comply with, right? To then disclose and inform you. But bottom line is you will not have to go through that terrible experience where you're going to sleep cleaning, they cover you with sensors to detect something. We are going to do that for you without you even knowing it and without wearing anything. The same will apply to any cardiovascular disease. We can already see arrhythmia, we can already see atrial fibrillation in our back end. And without you, again, wearing anything. So to answer to your question is 100% yes, companies like us and Eight Sleep will do everything that you need to maximize your sleep performance. Yeah. And this is on sleep. Outside sleep, because we have so much space, you stand still in the same place every single night for multiple years, we will add so many sensors that you can't even imagine of, and we will be able to scan your body and detect any sort of illness. 
Do you do you imagine a world in which Eat Sleep also has a retail kind of stores and people are coming there to do some level of testing and then because yeah. I mean that's how the lab experience was is I mean you go there and you get all these damn nodes on you but I mean I could almost foresee it and you talk about being a healthcare company or it becoming a healthcare company of doing that yourselves or you know even working and partnering with hospitals to you know be on their mattresses while patients are there so I'm just curious about kind of the short slash long-term plans uh, for eight sleep beyond what it is today. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we'll move in that direction, right? There will be a more remote clinical trials that will happen through devices like ours. Uh, people like you, maybe in the future, you will just get, and now your insurance company will ship you a cover. They say, install this, and we will let you know within five days if you have sleep apnea. Right. Uh, all that is going to happen. And so also the type of business will not be purely a consumer business, but hopefully insurance companies and payers and employers yep. will subsidize uh, part of this. Um, I, this. I mean, like thinking about the hardware and software, and obviously 8Sleep has both components, you know, like looking at examples like Apple, for example, who's done an incredible job of building just a sustainable business around both. And they're constantly you know, innovating on both hardware and software. Is that, I mean, do you see like this industry and in, in eight sleep having that type of impact on the world where kind of it's this const- constant development and there's so much to do on both ends? Yes, I do. And I think the big advantage we have is while wearables, uh, they're all fighting for your wrist or maybe for a, one of your fingers. And so there is a lot of competition. There is, um, no competition in our form factor. But the advantage of our form factors, the advantages are two. One, we have a lot of space, which means we can embed sensors that no wearable company can use, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't have the space and they even don't have the power. We are plugged to the wall. They need to rely on a battery. That's one. And two is our um, the fact that you use our product every single day for multiple years. Even if you don't open the app, you're still sleeping on our bed on your bed unless you're traveling this means that we still have your data and we can come back to you to let you know if there is anything that you need to know about your health Mm -hmm. this doesn't apply with wearables because 50 percent of their customers stop using the wearable within six months right and obviously you know we're spending a third of our time sleeping and and two-thirds of our time awake which is i'm assuming the angle that a lot of these other wearable companies are taking with like the wrist and the finger but but you mentioned it earlier that sleep is not just limited to that you know seven, eight hours or six to eight hours or whatever it is, there's also other things that you, you could be doing during the day that affect your sleep. And so do you see eight sleep kind of moving into anything that, you know, is, is more like during the active points of your day? Yes, but the way we will do it, we already started doing it a few weeks ago. So now we are able to collect the data from any other wearable. And so you will see, I don't know, your Aura or Garmin or Peloton data in the eight sleep app. And our machine learning and AI engines, they combine it with our own data. And then we provide you with insights. So the answer is yes, but instead of developing an hardware product for the day, we just leverage there are 50 wearable companies out there. Let's just get the data from them, connect it to our data, and provide you value. Matteo, this might be a stupid question, but I truly don't know the answer. If there's two people sleeping on the bed and you have one cover, how, how does that work? So each side of the bed is completely independent. So you have each partner, each person has uh, its own temperature. 
and they also have their own metrics. How about so if like my spouse encroaches on my property? <laughs> so first, if your site is cold and your site is warm, she will not come. So yeah, you can protect it. your site. Got it, got it, um, got it. But yeah, no, as long as each of them is on their side, we will have a high definition of their metrics. So where can people, you know, if you want to just kind of shameless plug here, but where can people learn about you guys, buy the products or test them out, whatever, however it works, if you wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so we are on 8sleep.com, 8 like the number, just in letters, so E-I-G-H-T sleep.com. We have two products. One is a cover that you can install onto any mattress. The other is the whole mattress. We cool and heat each side of the bed to maximize your sleep, and we also pick up all your biometrics. Um, So check it out. We have thousands and thousands of people raving about us and reporting better sleep. Amazing. Well, Matteo, we can uh, thank you enough for hanging out with us and, and you know spending your evening sharing your story and, and more about Eight Sleep and all the kind of takeaways from the space. And we're excited to see you know the continue company continue to evolve and, and we'll be following along. But you know, hopefully, we can uh, get in, you know uh, get together in person someday. And this has been this has been awesome. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Matteo. <laughs>